Hello again, and welcome to Global Exchange, part of the Canadian Global Affairs Institute's podcast network. I'm your host, Colin Robertson. On this episode, recorded on November the 3rd, we talk with CJAI fellows Michael Manulek and Kerry Buck about their new paper, Canada and the United Nations, Rethinking and Rebuilding Canada's Global Role. Michael and Kerry co-chaired the distinguished panel that produced the paper, published by Carleton University's Norman Patterson School of International Affairs. We will link to the paper in our program notes. Michael is Associate Professor at NIPSIA and author of the new book, Change in Global Environmental Policies, published by Cambridge University Press. He also spent part of his career in government, uh, negotiating proliferation uh, issues at the Department of National Defense. Kerry is a former diplomat who served as our political director and as our ambassador to NATO. Michael, welcome, and Kerry, welcome back. Thanks very Good much, you, Colin. For listeners, Canada and the United Nations, Rethinking and Rebuilding Canada's Global Role, launches a series of papers named, or, named after our most distinguished diplomat, Lester Pearson, who also taught in Ipsia. The inaugural paper argues that with the frame of the post-war global order engineered by Pearson and others, the United Nations, the centerpiece of the post-war global set of institutions, is under immense threat. And yet, to quote the paper, quote, Canada needs the United Nations more than ever, but, quote, Canada today punches below its historic weight at the United Nations. The report argues Canada needs to focus on three objectives. First, a more functional, interest-based approach. Second, greater Canadian capacity to exercise influence. And third, heightened Canadian presence at the United Nations missions and in priority United Nations bodies. To achieve these objectives, the paper sets out a series of recommendations, including developing a UN strategy with focused priorities on sustainable development, climate, health, peace and security, seeking a seat on the UN Security Council, backed up with more staff for our UN missions, more Canadians within the UN system, and a public information campaign reminding Canadians why the United Nations matters. So let's begin. Kerry, tell us about how you came to create the panel and what you uh, envisage for future Pearson papers. Um, thanks, Colin. Uh, I met Michael when I went to his uh, class of students at the Norm Patterson School um, to talk about uh, history and how history helps make foreign policy decisions. So we went out for coffee afterwards, and Michael and I were chatting about just how central the UN has been to Canada's foreign policy throughout our history. And how it's even more important today, as you said, Colin, um, you know, issues of the global commons like climate change that can't be dealt with without a global, you know, global solution. Um, but also how it's harder to do that. Canada is a lonely area at the UN for a number of reasons that we can get into. So we wanted to explore how Canada could use the UN more effectively in today's significantly changed world where uh, diplomacy at the UN is harder. It's harder to use the UN to shape the world we need, but we need it even more, as you said. As for future Pearson papers, I'll do a plug here. 
my husband, my spouse, has just written a book about the letters between Lester B. Pearson and Jeffrey Pearson throughout uh, their lives that should be coming out in the next few months. Maybe that would be a subject for a future Pearson paper, but I'll leave that to And a future podcast. <laughs> yeah, future podcast. But I'll leave that to um, Michael to talk about the future Pearson papers, uh, what ideas he might have in mind. Michael, yeah, a lot of, please. A lot of opportunities on, on the Pearson papers, which we're establishing. And as you said, um, Colin, it um, the, by, by calling them the Lester B. Pearson papers, we're both acknowledging or giving a nod to Canada's greatest diplomat, um, but also one of the one of the first professors of the Norman Patterson School who taught a seminar on uh, Canada's, uh, Canada's foreign policy um, at, at the school and became uh, quite quite popular among the students. Um, so, uh, so we're uh, we're very happy to recognize that, and I think just as Lester Pearson's interests were very broad in terms of you know a founder of the United Nations, of NATO, of uh, you know playing a, a key role in bringing about peacekeeping within the United Nations system, um, and and also interest in international development, global health. I think that there's a very broad uh, range of issues, but um, the focus will be on uh, subjects that are policy relevant. Um, and um, and focused on uh, international affairs and issues of relevance to Canada. I think that's great. Well, as as a graduate of the Norman Patterson School, I also I had uh, two of people who had great admiration for Lester Pearson. Pearson had gone by the time I got to the school, but Arnold Smith was my uh, tutor for my, my my major paper, which was on Trudeau and the Commonwealth. And Tommy Burns taught us. Uh, it was there talked about the importance of, of hard power to back up soft power and that role at the United Nations. So I certainly applaud what you're doing and it fits into the, the, the whole history of what the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs is all about. Michael, to continue here, maybe you might want to lead on this one. You argue mm -hmm. that the United Nations is the only global game in town and you cite Pearson's observation that if Canada is to quote, escape from permanent inferiority, our security must be found in an organization to which we ourselves contribute, unquote. So what makes multilateralism particularly attractive and important for Canada? Yeah, it's um, it's a good question, Colin. I think oftentimes I, I teach international affairs, obviously, and I focus on international organizations at, here at the Norman Patterson School. I'm very much engaged in the public conversation, and I'm struck by the sense among many that international cooperation in the United Nations are idealistic in some sense, that uh, by doing that, we're following our values, perhaps sometimes to the neglect of our own interests, that the real hard national interests are uh, pursued through the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, through the G7, through perhaps the Five Eyes. This couldn't be further from the truth. Uh, what has always driven international cooperation, including through the United Nations, is the shared interest of countries. And Canada has always pursued its hard national interest through international cooperation in the United Nations. It's upon that system that Canadian security and prosperity is based. Um, and the United Nations is very much the operating system. It's the root of the broader system of international norms, rules, procedures that allow Canada to effectively exercise influence, protect and promote its global interests in the system. And as I think we're beginning to see uh, a fraying of that system, a breakdown of certain foundational norms and rules, a challenging of the existing international order, uh, Canada has a vital interest in helping to preserve that multilateral order. 
Um, and you don't have to take it from me. I was recently reading the rereading the Gray lecture that Louis Saint Laurent gave in 1947, and um, a really a foundational speech for Canada's post-war foreign policy. Um, and he said, "What well, we have seen also the chaos which is brought to world affairs when lawlessness is practiced in the field of international relations. If there is one conclusion that our common experience has led us to accept." It is that the security of the country lies in the development of a firm structure of international organization. Um, it's the breakdown of that structure, I think, that fundamentally threatens Canada's interests. And while NATO and the G7 are really, really important organizations, they are not um, they are not that structure. The United Nations is that root. It's that structure upon which all the system of international norms and rules is based. And Canada has a fundamental interest in preserving that system and upholding that system. Um, Further, it also gives us a seat at the table on many of the global discussions. And when we pursue, um, as we increasingly do, and many countries do, our interests through a through minilateralism, through a set of niche institutions outside of the UN context, um, we often find ourselves actually uh, not having a seat at the table. Those conversations can sometimes happen without Canada being there. Um, and we need a seat at the table of this, these big global norms and rules are being established as we move forward into the 21st century. Uh, and so Canada very much has a strong national interest in preserving the United Nations, reinforcing the United Nations and ensuring that it's fit for purpose into the 21st century. No, I think that's right. Kerry, um, I sometimes think there's a false dichotomy set up between sort of the hard power institutions like NATO and what some see as a softer yeah. side, although it's not, I think this unfair categorization of the UN. You know, you you served at NATO, and certainly Pearson himself, who almost became Secretary General for NATO, saw that the, the two complemented one another. Isn't that a, a better way to put it? They, they are multilateral, uh, some functional, some regional based. And then, of course, the United Nations as the centerpiece. No, absolutely. I mean, NATO was at the beginning, and this is a large part due to Lester Pearson's uh, negotiating skills, um, and it's policy uh, imperative that NATO be a political body, and it is a political body. When I was an ambassador to NATO, we'd use it when the uh, UN Security Council was unable to pronounce on something. We would make political pronouncements across all of the allies uh, on uh, political security issues um, that uh, concerned us because the UN Security Council couldn't work. But there's also a lot of back and forth between NATO and the UN. In a way, the UN's the almost like the operating system for all of the other regional bodies, including NATO. So it's um, absolutely imperative that the UN function better. Um, the problem for Canada is that, um, you know, we're increasingly peripheral inside the UN for some reasons beyond our control, but some reasons that are in our control. Oh, I think that's right. Um, Carrie, you argue, and I would concur, although I would say that the notable exception of the work that Ambassador Bob Ray does at the UN, that Canada today punches below its historic weight at the UN. So my question, and if you want to lead on this one, how do we get there into this situation? Your paper, which goes into some detail, you look at both some of the structural problems uh, that we have, bureaucratic challenges, uh, as well as some of the internal and external constraints. Do you want to share with listeners what you have in mind here? Because this is really, in many ways, the heart of the analysis of the paper. And you know, you draw from both yourselves and the distinguished panel, all of whom have had a lot of experience with international and multilateralism. 
Ambassador Ray does a fantastic job and it's not just him. I mean, we've traditionally sent some very strong diplomats to the UN missions, but um, they're increasingly um, facing challenges that, as I said, some of them are in our control, others aren't. Um, so I see there are four, the paper's quite detailed on this, but I see four main reasons about why Canada is punching below its weight. First, uh, the diplomatic landscape has changed significantly and Canada hasn't kept up. We haven't kept up in a number of ways. Lack of resources at those missions to the UN, if you compare us to G7 and G20, um, uh, other nations, our missions are small. They can't cover the meetings they need to cover. Um, we've also underinvested over the years in um, those states that I call the bridge states or the in-between states. And those states are vital when we want to build interest-based, issues-based coalitions. Um, you know, states like uh, South Korea, for instance, or Mexico over time, we're starting to reinvest in them. But diplomacy isn't just transactional. You don't just pop up and say, I need you for this. You've spent decades building those relationships so you can use them when you, when you need them. Um, the second reason I think that we're increasingly uh, peripheral um, is uh, how we do diplomacy. Um, so I'll give you a couple of examples. Um, we have a domestic political debate that's been going on for a long time um, that basically says, well, you know, Canada doesn't talk to bad guys. That's not diplomacy. The whole point of diplomacy is to affect states' behavior, including those states that you're having difficulty with. Um, so I think we need to refine our history of diplomatic pragmatism. But the second way that we've done diplomacy is in a, in a way that doesn't quite work, um, is when we uh, talk the talk, but there's not enough walk beneath it. So for instance, we talk about uh, UN peacekeeping and it's been seen as a priority in some mandate letters and we are lower in terms of our contributions to peacekeeping than we ever have been. On the feminist foreign policy, which is absolutely vital to Canada's interests and has been a constant um, taking a, a, an approach to women's equality in our foreign policy has been, been a constant across successive governments. So it's nonpartisan, but the way sometimes we frame it, unless it's backed up by pragmatic programming uh, support, and unless it's pragmatic diplomacy, we can be seen as hectoring. So how we do diplomacy matters. Third, we have positioned ourselves as a preference outlier on some key issues at the UN in ways that can be seen to alienate um, a lot of the developing country uh, partners that we will rely on to create those issues-based coalitions inside the UN that we need. Uh, vaccine hoarding during the pandemic is one. And then finally, um, at the UN, Canada's traditionally been a supplier of ideas and initiatives, policy initiatives. So violence against women, um, human security, disarmament, maternal and child health under uh, um, Prime Minister Harper, uh, et cetera. Um, but in recent years, the supply of ideas has dried up and it's due to a number of reasons, I think, uh, deep reluctance to commit resources to new initiatives, 
but also a growing aversion to risk inside the public service, the diplomatic corps and at the political levels, I think. But the end result is that Canada is a uh, more of an agenda taker now rather than an agenda maker. And that's a departure from our history at the UN from the very beginning. Carrie, is that aversion to risk? Is that something that uh, is particular to this government or is this something that sort of build over time? Because I think you're right. I certainly remember my first experience. I worked for your uh, late father-in-law, Jeff Pearson. I, my first assignment was in the UN Bureau, and it was two very strong divisions. Uh, and we had a very big presence. We were on the Security Council at the time with Bill Barton, and, and our best officers were down there, people like Bob Fowler and Jeremy Kinsman and Michael Kurgan and others. And you really did feel, as you point out, that we we did punch, we punched be beyond our weight. And we we were, what impressed me, I worked on the third committee with Dan Livermore, was just the ideas. When Barton yeah. would bring people together in the morning, it was, okay, how can we fix this? What is it? And then there was a, a really healthy discussion and it was vigorous and vibrant and, and there, there was heated debate. And then it, for me, it was just, uh, it was all I could have hoped for. Yeah, um, I mean, and it's a particular Canadian personality at the UN too. So my two examples um, are how Canada worked over the course of two decades to build norms on violence against women, um, make sure that rape was seen as a war crime or maternal and child health. And those come under two different uh, liberal government, a conservative government. Um, so there's there's been space to um, make a difference for Canada to make a difference, right? You, you, you see a gap in international norms or in international systems, and you fill the gap by building a table and other countries come to it. Um, well, I think two, two reasons for that. Part of it is there was a period in the 90s where there was a lot of space for new ideas. Um, and that period, that window for, um, you know, a lot of progress at the UN is narrower, but there's still room to do it. But second, I think we've done it to ourselves inside Canada, honestly. Um, part of the bureaucracy has shifted over time over the last few decades, where we prioritize management for management's sake and the senior managers, um, rather than ideas generation. Um, we've also um, increasingly over the last short while um, seen global affairs as more of a domestic department, bringing in a lot of the senior table DMs, ADMs who come from domestic departments and don't have a background in diplomacy. And from my perspective, diplomacy is something you build up. You build up the contacts and the knowledge and the networks over years so you can use them when Canada needs them. Uh, it's a different approach to delivering for government of Canada. I'm not saying people with a, a background in domestic departments can't learn diplomacy. Absolutely can. We all learned it at some point, but I think the balance is off. Oh, I think that's right. Michael, Kerry talked about bridge states and named uh, South Korea and Mexico as two. And I, I think that the, the, the your approach in, in, uh, is exactly right. Who else would you put in that group? Uh, Melanie Jolie is promising more diplomats abroad, and uh, I think she's already listening to parts of your paper. Uh, Carrie's comment about that we don't, uh, we, we, we will not, we don't talk to people we don't like. I, she's saying in a speech she gave earlier this week that no, we're going to change that now. We will talk to others, which I think is was traditional Canadian approach. Certainly Pearson practiced this, and where where that happened, I'm not quite sure, but it, it seemed to have in the last few years slipped into our, our approach. 
but who else would you identify as bridge states? Because I know you look at the, the big picture and in your recent book, uh, looking at, at, at states in the UN, who, who would you put in there where we should be trying to do more with? I think in there are a number of states that we could that we could work with. South Korea is a great great example, uh, and I think that there's been now a, a real investment in that relationship. Uh, but there are countries, Mexico, uh, Brazil, Argentina, in our hemisphere that are real uh, that that are really important. Uh, relations with India are um, not particularly good right now, um, but um, but this is an important country in the longer run. Indonesia. Um, but I'd also point out that it's not just the relations on on a bilateral basis and ensuring it's it's a matter with those relations of of using them or or employing them to further our interests in multilateral uh, settings as well. Um, and then further, other international organizations can become and reinforce Canada's influence at the United Nations. I'll give an example. Uh, historically, the Commonwealth of Nations, a an institution that currently we're not giving a lot of emphasis to, uh, provided a vital, vital mechanism, almost a staging ground for a lot of activities at the UN. It's got more than 50 states um, scattered across the world, and it provided a vital mechanism, whether it was during the Korean War or the Suez Crisis, or in some of Ryan Mulroney's work in combating apartheid, uh, the Commonwealth was really a central institution that reinforced Canada's capacity to exercise influence at the United Nations. Um, La Francophonie can play a similar role if, if, if we're strategic about it, and it's recognizing the strategic relationship with our network of bilateral relations, as well as the other multilateral institutions that we're engaged in, uh, the relationship of all of those different um, um, areas of diplomacy uh, to our ability to advance our agenda and protect our interests, advancing our priorities at the United Nations that I think uh, is a vital step in the right direction. I, I think that that's certainly correct. And certainly when I joined the department, we had a full division that was attended to Commonwealth Affairs. We had people post to the Commonwealth. And as you pointed out, reading rereading the Gray Lecture, when Saint Laurent talked about multilateralism as the kind of balance to the preponderant relationship with the United States, what he was talking about was essentially uh, the Commonwealth and other some of the new organizations, obviously the UN and things, but the Commonwealth was an area where Canada, because the United States wasn't there, we really could play. And as you identify, Brian Mulroney certainly used this with, uh, I think, considerable effect. It always surprised me that, that we didn't seem we didn't seem to take full advantage of our place as the senior uh, member of the Commonwealth uh, that had been a colony. Well, yeah, perhaps a um, subject for a future Pearson paper. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, stay with you, Michael, for a second, because you argue that we need a strategy for the UN. Tell us what it should look like. And do you want to mm -hmm. give us a little bit more detail about uh, how you came to identify some of the key elements and problems? Yeah, I think I think Canada, for, first of all, hasn't had a foreign policy review since 2005. Um, that's 18 years. Um, and so there's no, uh, we've been doing smaller policies, you know, an Indo-Pacific strategy, the defense policy review, um, but uh, but these don't provide the overarching uh, focus. Um, and so I should make first a plug that, that we really do need a foreign policy review overall, but absent that, a United Nations review, perhaps similar in, in scope and thrust to, to some elements of the Indo-Pacific strategy, might be a good way to provide a focus for us to uh, think through Canada's priorities in the context of the United Nations. Um, and such a such a strategy should be developed on a firm interdepartmental basis. Kerry talked off the bat, uh, off the top, about how there are so many different departments and agencies in the Canadian government that are involved in crafting 
uh, UN policies uh, and representing the country diplomatically in the various UN specialized agencies, programs, and funds. Um, so we uh, that that strategy should involve all of those actors as well as uh, provinces, territories, civil society actors to the extent that they're involved and in, in vital uh, players within the United Nations. Um, and, and I think one of the criticisms of policies is often that they are obsolete by the time they come out. Um, but the process of going through and really examining our underlying priorities, identifying some priorities on an intergovernmental, interdepartmental basis, I think is as uh, valuable as the strategy itself that comes out. Um, and this, I think, has a few a few benefits. First of all, it, it enables better coordination because it allows us to identify a set a limited number of priorities. Um, and one of the recommendations that we have is that Canada should develop a short list of UN priorities, perhaps five or six priorities that could provide a focus for the investment of our uh, voluntary funds, for the investment of our diplomatic and political capital. Um, so uh, providing a strategy might uh, would provide a, a vehicle for identifying those priorities. Um, it lets those other, other governments and other government departments know where Canada's, uh, what Canada is seeking to achieve. Um, it signals to other governments outside of Canada what, uh, what Canada is trying to do, what it's trying to achieve in, uh, in the context of the, other uh, of the United Nations, which is also uh, vitally important, I would argue. Um, and it allows us also perhaps to understand the relationship between our network of bilateral relations, which is a real asset, in multilateral affairs as well as bilateral affairs, understand the relationship of those relationships um, with uh, Canada's broader UN engagement um, and how we can ensure that institutions like the Commonwealth and La Francophonie and, and NATO and other uh, important intergovernmental organizations feed into Canada's overall UN priorities. Oh, I think that makes a lot of sense. Kerry, uh, Melanie Jolie gave a speech this week in which she talked about pragmatic uh, diplomacy, which I think is something that you would endorse. And she also promises part of the diplomacy initiative, which is still coming out to increase staff at the UN. So you can check another box. Uh, I'm, I think she should also read your paper and I, maybe she's already done so. Um, but you also argue that uh, we need to put Canada on the Security Council and into UN positions. What encouragement can you give to the government or a polyev government that would uh, avoid the fate of our last two tries at, uh, at UN Security Council seat in 2010 and 2020? Because I think there's um, a certain gun shyness yeah. now on the part of both uh, yeah. major parties. Yeah, no, I think you're right that they're gun shy after two pretty visible high profile losses in our uh, attempt to get a seat at the Security Council. It did not do good for Canada's international reputation. And yeah, they're gun shy. Although I was really happy to see um, the government uh, put forward Canada's candidacy for the UN Human Rights Council. That's really uh, important. So the argument I would make is twofold. Uh, first, that a seat on the UN Security Council is in Canada's national interest. It's still, the Security Council is still the world's most significant security venue, um, even when it has difficulty making decisions, as it has recently. It has been unable to pronounce on uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine for obvious reasons. It was unable to pronounce on China's treatment of Uyghurs and on a few other issues. But, you know, it has always been thus. Um, I was reading a speech by Louis Saint Laurent uh, at the UN General Assembly 1947, and he said the UN Security Council was frozen in futility. 
So the UNSC, you know, has had difficulty pronouncing on some of the big political security uh, challenges of the day, but it still has a lot of power in the system. Even when it can't make the big decisions, it's making smaller decisions, but it's also the table, the table of power, and it helps with Canada's not just its reputation, but sitting alongside the major players helps with your leverage throughout the whole of the United Nations system. So not only do we have, Canada has a national interest in how the issues at the UN Security Council are resolved or not, we also have an interest in increasing our leverage across the UN system, which you do when you sit on the UN Security Council. So that's the why. But the how, I think we've lost for one major reason, both times, we came up very, very late. Um, in my experience, I have seen countries announce their candidacy more than 22 years in advance of uh, UN Security Council elections. You can't pop up at the last minute because there's intense negotiation inside geographic groups as to who will be their candidates. Um, we've tried and we put forward good campaigns, but we came up very, very late. The last um, uh, 2020 UN Security Council election, uh, Ireland uh, announced their candidacy in 2005 and Norway in 2007, and we were years later. So we have to stop being so naive and we need bipartisan support so that through successive governments, we can put forward our candidacy and carry it forward for, and the safest and smartest thing to do is to go forward for an uncontested seat from our geographic group. I think there's a second reason. I think we've been very coy about our own agenda at the UN Security Council. We did give some indications in New York during the last Security Council campaign about what our priorities might be, but they weren't set out very early. They weren't very visible. And I think if you're bringing something to the table and Canada has things to bring to the table, you need to um, um, be clear about it and build up Canadian support if you're gonna you know, put forward Canada's seat uh, across successive governments, you can build up Canadian support and understanding for what you're all about, what Canada's all about at the UN. Um, I also think we dodged a bullet by not getting that UN Security Council seat last night because we're not set up internally with our governance and our expertise on international security issues. UN Security Council decisions have to be made fast and they have to be informed by deep knowledge and that we need to um, change, rebuild our multilateral capacity and rebuild some of our security capacity and retool some of the internal uh, government machinery. So we're more agile, quicker and um, do a better job. Gary, are we in the right group? I've often thought that we are a country of the Americas. Would we not be better placed to be running within the Americas? I sometimes feel within the Western European yeah. and other group that we're just uh, an orphan. Well, we are an orphan and that makes it more challenging. I personally don't think the Latin American group makes sense for us in uh, UN electoral uh, contests for a couple of reasons, but uh, we used to have better standing in the Western European and others group, but since the EU started um, doing uh, consistent kind of block uh, decision-making positioning at the UN, which was a couple of decades ago, um, they've taken up more space in um, choosing Western European and other group candidates, uh, European candidates. And so 
uh, yeah, we've been a bit orphaned in that group. But um, the Latin American and Caribbean group, I don't think that we would find more space to be frank. Um, there's a certain solidarity in that group and we, we in terms of policy uh, that they bring forward at the UN and uh, we don't quite fit that bill. I think the answer for us is more cooperation, collaboration with um, CANS, Australia, New Zealand, um, yep. trying to um, act more as a block, spell each other off, um, help each other out at the UN more. And when we can take, uh, take some more, um, you know, coordinated positions or covering of meetings, that kind of thing. But that can also work in terms of electoral fortunes. Yeah, no, I think that's a fair point. Michael, something that's close to my heart is you recommend a public information campaign aimed at Canadians about the value of the UN. Uh, what, what would be sort of the main pitch? Because I, I think that as you point out in the paper, you know, the UN is in part a Canadian creation or these engineers of people like Pierce and the rest. Um, but of late, it, it doesn't seem to have the same uh, stature it had certainly when I was first joined or even as a kid when I were quite aware of, of the UN. And Yeah, I think I think there's a, a taken for granted quality of the benefits that the that the UN provides. Um, many of which are relevant to the day-to-day -day lives of Canadians and are totally taken for granted. Um, whether it's the work of the International Civil Aviation Organization, the International Telecommunication Union, the International Maritime Organization, we saw it with the, the relevance of the World Health Organization all too well um, a couple of years ago. Um, many of these, um, you know, the Universal Postal Union is another, is another vital one. There are actually a lot of um, elements of our life that we take for granted that are really supplied by effective cooperation in the context of UN specialized agencies and programs. Um, and Canadians, these are, are, are elements that, the Cana that Canadians would notice um, if, uh, if they're disruptive by global division and global, um, uh, global conflict. Um, and so I think that this is uh, very important. Also, we're, um, we're, I think the United Nations is the only organization we're increasingly in a world of, uh, of polarization. And we've seen, we've had a bit of a foretaste of um, what great power competition looks like and how it affects the daily lives of Canadians when we experience hostage diplomacy or steel and aluminum tariffs. It's not a world that's congenial to Canada's global interests. Um, the United Nations is the only organization that can bring the world together, North and South, East and West, in uh, pursuit of common and shared problems uh, and tackling those problems, whether they be climate change, pandemics and health, uh, the loss of biological diversity. Um, and we need those institutions in order to tackle these big collective challenges that the world increasingly faces. Um, and so uh, again, the United Nations is, is vital here. It is the only game in town, as we say in the report, for tackling these types of problems. Um, and, they, uh, and they bring the world together. Um, also underlining the fact as, as we are entering in this period of pol polarization, the United Nations is the antidote to that. Our new Cold War is not in Canada's global interests. We have to make that absolutely and abundantly clear. And so by feeding into systems that increase polarization in the world, we're working against Canada's interests. The United Nations is again that, that antidote. Um, and, and just to underline um, as to why Canada needs to get back into the UN game, as the Canada and other some other Western countries have uh, increasingly stepped away from the United Nations, other actors with other global priorities seeking to roll black, back global norms on health, 
on, on gender are increasingly seeding the UN uh, agencies with their own nationals that are, um, that are uh, susceptible to pressure from, uh, from their capitals. We're increasingly giving up, giving up the field to these actors that are increasingly rolling back norms that are fundamental to Canadian values and interests on the world stage. Um, I think a global uh, information campaign underlying how important the, the United Nations is uh, for uh, in all of these ways would be really, really important going forward. Gary, I want to speak. Could you speak to this as well? Because I think the point you make that we need to have place Canadians in the UN, uh, and and that becomes not only very good for the UN, but these uh, spokespersons. I'm thinking of people like Maggie Catley Carlson, Louise Rochette, who served with distinguished careers at the UN after having distinguished uh, diplomatic careers, came back to Canada and sort of personified and became apostles for the UN. And we saw them visibly and because you identify with them, I think it did a lot to raise the stature of the UN. But as you point out, we haven't been as, or maybe just have, I don't know, what, what happened? Did we just stop trying to put people in UN positions or was it too much work? What was the, because we've got a much bigger personnel department than we ever had before. Why why aren't we doing that? Well, we are. We, we actually have a fair few Canadians inside the UN system. Um, but that's more by happenstance than design. Um, first, you know, if you're Canadian or any nationality inside the uh, UN bureaucracy, as Michael said, you park your passport at the door. So you're not there as a Canadian. Um, but when you come back, you certainly do help explain the UN, not just to Canadian citizens, but um, you bring enormous assets into the bureaucracy if people go out to the UN and come back in. But um, we're not managing this now. In a way, we're being typically Canadian. So uh, what we do now is we will, inside the government, post that there's a senior position coming up at the UN. Then people will apply, we'll run an open process, and we'll pick the one person who kind of matches the skill set, and then we'll put that name forward. And then there'll be a little bit of diplomatic push from our missions to try and get the job for that person. The person won't necessarily have a background in the UN, won't necessarily know people at the UN. That's all very Canadian. It's above board, great. And it's horribly naive if you look at how other states like the UK, France, the US and others do it. What they do is they'll put junior people in, groom them for the positions. So those junior people will get to know the UN system, get to know the seniors. They're already known to the system and ready to hit the ground running. Um, I'm not advocating some kind of, you know, uh, white smoke comes out of the chimney and we send these, you know, people who've been pre-selected because of who they know into the UN. Um, it, it's a fair system, but what you do is you build up more multilateral skill sets and you build up more visibility, more networks. So you get those people in. And the second thing, so we need a little mm, smarter process uh, that is longer term. Um, and the second thing is we need to actually see this as an asset for Canada when those people come back. And right now, by and large, if you're a diplomat, Canadian diplomat, and you go off to the NATO Secretariat, the UN Secretariat, OSC, you name it, at best, it's career neutral. Back at headquarters, we don't pay attention. We don't understand the benefit that's brought back. And, um, you know, good luck reintegrating into headquarters after you've done that kind of international organization's deployment. It doesn't make sense. 
we're missing out on all the benefit those people can be. So there's some internal improvements that uh, could happen for sure. Oh, no, I think that makes a lot of sense. Carrie, stay with me because, uh, you know, budgets are always an issue, particularly at global affairs or external affairs or foreign affairs. So how pass to position what you're you're arguing for, <laughs> you know, in the inevitable Treasury Board submission that we're going to have to make for this? Are there any sort of... You know, again, you were political director, your ambassador at the UN, at the at NATO. I'm sorry, but what 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 do we got to do to make this happen? Because ultimately, it comes down to funding, and we're not always good at the Treasury Board game. Well, even worse, uh, I chaired our last our, our round of cuts in the 2000s. I chaired the internal uh, foreign affairs committee that managed that round of cuts, and then. My last job before retiring was at Treasury Board Secretariat. So, um, yeah, you're right. We're not so good at making the money case. But it, here's the thing. The point of our recommendations is to get more bang for Canada's UN buck. We're the eighth largest contributor to the UN's regular budget. We channel more than two thirds of our international assistance through multilateral partners. Um, so it only makes sense that we seek to amplify our influence at the UN. But to do it, we need more diplomats posted to the UN, and we need streams of diplomats who are better at multilateral um, and build those skill sets over time. Um, and the fact is that global affairs has been under-resourced for years across the system. So there's a recent round of government cuts, and um, GAC, global affairs, along with every other domestic department, has been told to cut its travel budget. Well. I don't think that makes a lot of sense to cut the travel budget for a foreign ministry. It's the whole raison d'etre. Does not make sense to me. Um, so you need a more strategic approach to cuts. And then in the 2000s, one of the cuts that foreign affairs at the time made, now global affairs, was to cut its environment and its health expertise. Well, in the world we live in today, uh, it's kind of predictable that you need that convening power on environment and health, not to replace the domestic departments, but to make sure we have a, a, a more strategic, more coherent approach to our diplomacy on those issues. We need to reinvest in those things. So I think there's a very strong case to be made um, for uh, more money, but our recommendations aren't just about money and not all of them need more money in order to get Canada more bang for its UN buck. It'd be quite easy to build a multilateral stream of Canada's foreign service, for instance, no extra cost. Um, when the government decides to put more Canadian diplomats at our UN missions, they need to take a strategic approach to this and not um, just draw from other multilateral missions, for instance, it doesn't make sense. And when they take that strategic approach, they have to say, okay, what are our priorities? And we will draw from the lower priority areas and put more at the UN. Um, so it makes money sense um, to implement our, our recommendations. Some of them cost money, others wouldn't, but GAC Global Affairs has been under-resourced for years. Oh, all right. Well, look, on, on, again, another good reason for <laughs> listeners to look at Canada, the United Nations, rethinking and rebuilding Canada's global role, the paper we're talking about that Carrie and Michael co-chaired. My, my final question to you, and I'll start with you, Michael, is what are you reading or streaming these days? 
you can plug your book again. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, my book, um, uh, which I'm not reading at the moment, um, but I've read it once or twice, is uh, Change in Global Environmental Politics uh, with Cambridge University Press. Um, what I've been reading lately is a lot on the League of Nations. It's um, often uh, forgotten. There's um, there's some a collection of speeches called The Way of um, The Way of Peace by uh, Robert uh, Cecil, uh, who was uh, one of the real um, originators of the League of Nations concept. Uh, he was involved in the Paris peace negotiations. And I think uh, what that and a lot of the other reading from people like Arthur Salter and Jean Monnet um, has highlighted to me is that um, contrary to popular opinion that the League of Nations was somehow fatally flawed all the way, there was uh, a real period of, of bursting forth of, of very valuable international cooperation on issues like refugees. The birth of the concept of an international secretariat really had its roots in Eric Drummond and his work at the League of Nations. Uh, the, 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 the way that we cooperate in the context of the UN was really shaped by, uh, by the League of Nations and countries were really learning how to cooperate internationally and discovering the benefits. Um, and so um, I, I think it's, it's not quite as failed as many people recognize, but it was slowly suffocated, uh, particularly through the 1930s, by uh, by its opponents, and and I think killed off by by our indifference. Um, and I think that there are some important lessons uh, that uh, that that holds for the UN uh, in our own attitudes toward it today. Um, it's um, it's uh, I think in in greater danger than many people recognize. And I think my my study of the League of Nations just underlines how fragile this uh, cooperative infrastructure is. Okay. Well, thanks, Michael. Look at the League of Nations and learn. Carrie, what are you reading or streaming these days? Uh, usually I have a very uh, juvenile tastes in literature and, and watching. So usually it's something that a 14-year-old boy would enjoy. But this time <laughs> around, I'm actually reading Lester B. Pearson's memoirs right, right now. And I'm educating myself even more about why Canada wanted to build a functioning multilateral system after the Second World War. And it is astonishing how much the world we're in right now a world that is full of strategic surprise, a lot of fluidity and a lot of fear resembles the world, I think, um, before the two world wars. And I think we need for Canada to have another multilateral moment to say that um, the multilateral system is needed. It's the best answer and we need to reinvigorate it. And I think there are a lot of lessons from history that we can take. All right, the Pearson memoirs and yep. Canada <laughs> and the uh, multilateral moment. Uh, amen to that, Carrie. Uh, Michael and Carrie, thank you very much. And uh, thanks for listening to this episode of the Global Exchange. We were joined today by Carrie Buck and Michael Manuluk in a discussion of their excellent paper, which I encourage you to read, Canada and the United Nations, Rethinking and Rebuilding Canada's Global Role. As I said, we're going to link to it in the program notes. You can find the Canadian Global Affairs Institute on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Global Exchange is brought to you by our team at the Canadian Global Affairs Institute. Thanks go to our producer, Joe Kalnan, and to Drew Phillips for providing the music. If you like the show, do give us a rating. I'm Colin Robertson. Thanks for joining us today on the Global Exchange. Mm -hmm.